You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the NC Insider. Thanks so much for clicking play this week and joining us for our weekly roundtable of North Carolina political news. On the panel this week, we've got Lauren Horsch from The Insider, Will Doran from The News and Observer, and a special guest this week, Don Vaughn from the Durham Herald Sun, joining us to talk a little Durham politics a little bit later in the podcast. So stay tuned for all that. Uh, it is, of course, uh, a few more days left before the Tuesday uh, May primaries for things like the North Carolina General Assembly races, uh, congressional races in North Carolina, and a few local races as well. Uh, so lots to talk about on that as we gear up for uh, our election night coverage next week. Be sure to check us out online um, as that's going on. I'm sure there'll be lots to uh, uh, go over next week on the podcast when we've got the results in, so definitely keep an ear out for that. Um, so let's start off talking uh, legislative primaries. Uh, we've been looking into some of the interesting races this week. Uh, Lauren and I have been trying to dig into a few of the um, interesting themes, I guess, in, in the different uh, primary races we've got. Lauren, you wrote about uh, double bunk legislators, so this is all a result of redistricting. Tell us a little about uh, who's uh, facing another incumbent and what that all means. Yeah, so we have four senators that are currently uh, double bunked, meaning they're essentially running against a coworker for a job promotion, but the person who doesn't get elected doesn't get their job back. Um, and we have in uh, Forsyth and Davie counties, we have Senator Dan Barrett, who was appointed uh, to former Senator Andrew Brock's seat about eight months ago, uh, facing off against Senator Joyce Kravick, um, who's been in for a couple of terms. I think she was also appointed in 2014 and has since uh, ran for re-election and uh, succeeded in winning. And then we also have out in uh, Western Mountain area, we have Senator Deanna Ballard, who's a first-term uh, senator, and she's going to run against Senator Shirley Randleman, who's been in for a couple terms, I want to say three. Um, and it's kind of, it's interesting to see how they're shaping up, because it really is two newcomers versus some strongholds. I know Randleman has a couple good chairmanships. Uh, Kravik's been pretty influential in getting a lot of um, conservative legislation passed. Um, and unfortunately, I've only been able to talk to uh, Deanna Ballard. She was really gracious with her time and talked with me about her campaigning. Um, the others, uh, Randleman, Barrett, and Kravik, just never got back to me after two weeks of pestering them. Um, but Ballard was talking about how, you know, it's really unfortunate that, you know, especially in her race, it's her versus Shirley Randleman, who are two very strong conservative women who have been working really well together, and that's also something I've been hearing from the county chairs of the local uh, Republican Party. So I've talked with the Watauga Republican Party as well as the Davie County Republican Party, and um, they're very confused about this double monking because they're really worried about losing that conservative representation in the General Assembly, and they do have you know, both of those districts. It's District 45 out in the mountains and District 31 uh, kind of in the triad region. You know, those are very conservative strongholds for the General Assembly, and they're going to lose some representation even though they have these great candidates. Um, and a lot of it is going to kind of come down to fundraising and kind of notoriety because really when the redistricting happened, they meshed together a lot of the counties. So I know um, previously Kravik hadn't represented Davie County a lot and, you know, same with Forsyth. So it really, you know, there's, there's a mesh up or a mashup, I should say. Um, so 
Barrett has had to learn a lot about Forsyth County, and he has, he's been in Forsyth County. He's a Wake Forest grad, um, and he went to Wake Forest Law as well. So he's used to the area, but he's a stronghold in Davie County, and he's a very grassroots campaigner when he was campaigning for governor, because yes, that did happen at one point. Uh, he yeah, I completely forgot that he at one point forgets. was a candidate for he governor. He has that gubernatorial look about him, but didn't win. Um, he actually walked across the state. I think it was 600 some miles he walked meeting voters at their doors. And I last I heard, they had his campaign had knocked on 8,000 doors, uh, which is a huge accomplishment for a very, you know, for a state senate seat to be able to knock on that many doors. Um, but Kravik also has a lot of money behind her. She's had some pack, um, some packs, you know, help with advertisement and mailers. Um, she's had a lot of support from the Main Street Merchants Association. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. Um, and Barrett's uh, campaign finance hasn't come in yet, so I don't, I haven't been able to look at all of his numbers. Um, and I, I really think that District 45 race out in the mountains is going to be close. Um, it's going to come down to some interesting endorsements and how much money. Uh, Deanna Ballard did have more money, did raise more money in the first quarter than uh, Shirley Randleman, um, and Ballard has some interesting endorsements. Yeah, the, that was a bit of a surprise. So the big one, so there's two big ones. One I didn't think I'd ever have to write, Sarah Palin, former vice presidential um, nominee Sarah Palin. Um, she endorsed Deanna Ballard. Um, and then there's also the former App State uh, head football coach, Jerry Moore? I forget his first name. It starts with a J, and my boyfriend's going to hate me for butchering that. But the former head football coach at App State has also endorsed Deanna Ballard. And that, up in Boone, is a huge get. Yeah. You want that endorsement. Yeah, you don't get that many football-oriented uh, no. endorsements in general. But No, but in App State, that's a big, uh, you know, in Boone and in Watauga County, that's a big endorsement to get. So it's going to be, those are two... Races, you would watch those races anyway, but because they are double bunked, they're going to be especially interesting to watch just to see how that plays out. Yeah, and then I guess we've got, uh, outside of the double bunking ones, uh, and I looked into fundraising a little bit, and it looks like the double bunked races, you haven't had as many uh, contributions from uh, major uh, Republicans in the legislature. Um, mm -hmm. Phil Berger, who's been helping out some of the uh, people in his caucus who have primary challenges is not uh, evidently jumping into this no. race with the double bunkings. I mean, the only thing Phil Berger has done, I guess, in a way, is you wrote about this, Colin, but the NC Senatorial Republican Committee, is that, is that the yeah. right amount of so words was, there? That was the one yeah. where there was a bit of a breakaway faction from the NCGOP a couple years back when the NCGOP was having some turmoil. Um, and so there's this fundraising committee that can legally be set up and raise mm -hmm. unlimited amounts of money under the control of leadership in the House and Senate. The House never made one. The Senate does have one. Um, and they were being used, I think, for some direct mail yeah, stuff. Yeah, so, so they both, you, that, that committee specifically has given money for mailers for both Kravik and Barrett um, out in Forsyth and Davie County. So that's kind of how they've jumped in, but then that's equal support, I guess. So there had yeah there hasn't been a lot from leadership. I know Jerry Tillman gave um, Deanna Ballard some money, and then there's been she's gotten a lot of money from um, her colleagues in the Senate. But that's kind of what is that right now? Yep. And then I I wrote a little story that uh, was posted uh, today as we're recording this on Thursday about uh, the uh, particularly controversial members of the House Republican Caucus. Um, if you co cover politics, follow politics, you know them well. Uh, Michael Speciali, Larry Pittman and George Cleveland, oftentimes in the news for things like 
comparing Lincoln to Hitler, uh, advocating for public hangings. Uh, the issue that seems to be coming up again and again because the three of them co-sponsored this bill was a bill from last year uh, that involved the secession provision in the Constitution. The state constitution has a provision that says you can't secede from the Union. You can imagine that that came in sometime, oh, I don't know, 1870s, 1880s, um, shortly after a, a certain uh, disagreement between the states. Um, and uh, there was a bill last year to take that provision out. Uh, and it caused a lot of uh, consternation of people worried of, uh, are, are some people actually proposing secession? Um, and while uh, in reporting this story, uh, Cleveland or, uh, Pittman and uh, Speciali uh, did not re respond to my request for an interview. Not terribly surprisingly, they never respond to anybody's request for an interview. Uh, Cleveland did sit down with me and I asked him about the uh, secession bill and he basically said he thought it was just a matter of cleaning up ancient language in the Constitution. He doesn't see any desire to secede. He thinks the bill was taken out of context, but uh, his opponent, uh, a guy named Joe McLaughlin, who's uh, down in uh, Onslow County, a former county commissioner, is uh, bringing that up as an example of uh, Cleveland being a, a bit out of touch with the, the key issues facing uh, that particular district. Um, and then you've got that issue also coming up with the races, uh, the Republican primary challengers who are uh, trying to unseat Pittman and Speciali, bringing that up along with uh, some other controversial statements being made, basically saying that uh, in terms of the issues, they don't really have a huge disagreement uh, with the incumbents. They, these are Republicans. They agree with most of the things that the uh, Republican legislature has done, uh, but they take issue with the style and the issues that these particular lawmakers have chosen to focus on in their term, uh, and they feel like there's a need for a change. So we'll see what Republican primary voters think of that. Um, the results on Tuesday in those races will be interesting to watch. Uh, fundraising numbers in those races seems to be, uh, not surprisingly, a little bit more advantageous to the incumbents, but the uh, challengers did, particularly in the uh, Cleveland-McLaughlin uh, race, uh, have, have done reasonably well and, and been able to get their message out. So uh, we'll see where all that ends up uh, in a few weeks. Um, and other uh, legislative primary we're all watching is the uh, Dwayne Hall race here in Wake County. And there's been some interesting stuff at the polls. Uh, check out the story. Andy Spay, who's not with us on the podcast this week, just posted today uh, about uh, an incident at the polls. Uh, Will and Lauren, you got uh, heard a little bit about this. Uh, mm -hmm. Jump in with a little more about uh, what went down at the polling place in Cary or wherever this was. Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was the, the Herb Young Herbert community. Herbert C. Young. Yeah, yeah, the community center there. and. Um, a uh, supporter of Allison Dahl, who's the woman who's running against Dwayne Hall in the primary, was there um, passing out copies of a News and Observer article about uh, some of the allegations of sexual harassment against Dwayne Hall. And who else is at that exact same polling place greeting voters but Dwayne Hall? Yeah, he hasn't been to candidate forums. He won't call back. But uh, he's media been. Requests, but, but he's, he's been, been very active at the polls. I mean, I've had multiple sources call me this week and be like, he's at this poll. His mom's with him. You guys got to come out here. Like he's been very active at the polls, greeting people and going out door knocking. Um, I had heard that some people had invited him into their houses for dinner. There's all sorts of stuff going on there. Um, but I'll let we'll continue. <laughs> yeah, no, it's clear he's definitely been going on this kind of charm offensive because obviously there have been, you know, a lot of, you know, sort of negative headlines about him in the news. So he's out there trying to see people face to face and talk to voters. And uh, then you had this kind of little little dust up, uh, you know, where the two of them meet. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently, uh, you know, according to the woman uh, who was handing out the, you know, the copies of the article about Hall, she says that Hall and another supporter of his who were there mm -hmm. approached her and 
you know, maybe not necessarily intimidated her, but, you know, told her that she needed to stop and actually ended up reporting her to the State Board of Elections. Yeah, the, uh, Lisa Gunter, is that her name? Linda Gunter, Gunter yeah. Linda Gunter, a former state senator, was with uh, Representative Hall, and kind of what happened was is this, this reading material that a private citizen not working for a campaign, just someone out there on her own was passing out, um, just, you know, trying to inform voters of the allegations against Hall, um, and the point of contention was is they wanted to know who was, you know, the material was, who was the material paid for by, because, you know, when you're out at a campaign, you're getting, uh, at a polling place, you're given a lot of literature, the, the palm cards that usually say paid for by XYZ committee. So the, because this was essentially a black and white article printed off of her own, I would say, computer, didn't have that because a campaign or a committee didn't, like, they didn't make these, you know, mailers or whatever. I don't even know what you consider yeah. them. It was just pieces of paper. Yeah, they're not used campaign resources <laughs> no. or anything to create. Yeah, so she was reported to the State Board of Elections and Ethics Enforcement, and they didn't find anything wrong with it. Um, so, it was, yeah, it's just there's a lot going on, and I know Hall's campaign signs are being uh, vandalized with uh, pink kiss marks out of paint, and it's, there's, that's, the race is very interesting. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see Tuesday night uh, how that goes down and whether the um, sexual harassment allegations end up being a factor in that race or if voters uh, decide that they want to keep Dwayne Hall in office uh, despite the allegations. So uh, we'll, we'll be watching that one. Uh, Will, you've also been looking at the congressional level a little bit with the uh, interesting Republican primary down east uh, where uh, Walter Jones is yet again uh, facing a couple different challengers who uh, don't seem to like his uh, unique brand of uh, republicanism. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it, it's one of two really interesting Republican primaries for Congress we've got going on. Obviously, the other one is Robert Pittenger, the representative from you know the Charlotte suburbs out there. And in that primary, it's kind of a, a race to the right to see you know who can be more pro-Trump uh, with between Pittenger and his challenger Mark Harris. But the Jones race is really not. Uh, you have Jones, you know, Jones, who's been in Congress for what, 24, 25 years. Um, and he's facing a challenger in uh, Scott Dacey, who's a local county commissioner from out east. Um, and Dacey is very pro-Trump. Uh, Walter Jones, notably, has voted against a lot of things that Trump has asked for, that the current uh, you know, Republican Party leadership has asked for. And uh, you know, Jones says that he's kind of in this weird spot where he is a fiscal conservative, and a lot of the bills that are being passed aren't really fiscally conservative. Uh, you know, the, the tax cut bill, obviously, that just passed added, uh, you know, what was it, $1.5 trillion to the national debt, I think. Uh, I forgot to look that up beforehand, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that's right. <laughs> but, you know, Jones, when he voted against the tax bill, that was his main complaint, was that it was adding so much money to the national debt, and, you know, Republicans have talked so much about how they think the national debt should be shrinking, not growing, and so he voted against it. Um, obviously, the knock from his challenger, uh, Mr. Dacey, against him is that, well, he's not supporting the Trump agenda. And, you know, if you're bucking party leadership on things, you know, do, you know, should Republicans vote for you if you're not going to, to go along with the, the party on these things? Yeah, and it seems like Jones has gotten similar primary challenges in the past prior to the, the Trump administration, but it'll be interesting to see if uh, sort of the polarization surrounding the, the president among Republicans changes things to where people are perhaps have more animosity towards Jones than they've had in the past just over you know, a sense of support for the president or not. Yeah, and unlike the Pittenger race, 
this Jones race is basically going to end with the primary. There's no Democrat running for that seat. So whoever wins this primary, um, whether it's Jones or Dacey, or there's also a third candidate running, but I think he's moved out of the district and isn't <laughs> mounting you know, as, as much of a campaign. It's pretty much between Jones and Dacey. Um, whoever wins that is basically guaranteed a seat in Congress since there's no Democrat running. Yeah, unless so. the Green Party decides to run a candidate <laughs> there, which would be really interesting to watch, but I don't know if they will or not. Cause they're going to nominate their candidates in a convention in a couple months, and we'll see what races they field coming in. But in a in a district that is rife with uh, current and former Marines, yeah, uh, I not don't know sure how, how well the Green Party do. But <laughs> we shall see. Uh, well, before we move on, I did want to touch on another story that was not election related that you had this week on state employee pay. Uh, tell us a little bit briefly about uh, what's going on with uh, how much state workers are getting the paychecks. Yeah. Um, a few state workers, a couple thousand, might see a little unexpected bump uh, coming up. The state is kind of redoing its pay scales. Um, and for those who aren't familiar, uh, when you get a state job, it has a range. And there's both a minimum salary that you can earn and a maximum salary that you can earn. And for some jobs that are either hard to recruit people for in the first place or hard to retain good people in, uh, you know, typically jobs that are a little underpaid compared to the private sector, like maybe some IT jobs or jobs that might be dangerous, like prison correctional officers, those types of jobs, they are bumping up the minimum uh, salaries for that. And um, what that means is, one, it's good news for people who want those jobs in the future. They're guaranteed you know, at least a little bit more money. And two, it's good jobs for people who are uh, working there right now and are making below what this new minimum is going to be. So uh, starting uh, in May, in this month, uh, they're going to uh, see those raises come into effect. And actually, the raises are retroactive from February. So in their first uh, their first paycheck here, they're actually going to get several months' worth of back pay. Um, and then in the future, uh, you know, they'll still get raises, but it won't be quite as big as the, uh, the May paycheck here. Um, so a lot of people are happy about that. Uh, but the interesting thing is I've gotten a ton of emails ever since I wrote it, all from people saying, what about teachers? You know, because this doesn't this doesn't apply to teachers. It's only you know the more traditional state employees in that sense of the word uh, doesn't touch teachers. And uh, you know, people are kind of like, okay, well, good for the state employees, but what are we doing about teacher raises? And tons of people emailing me, you know, like, oh, there's been you know strikes in all these other states and protests and everything like that. And you know, when is North Carolina going to get around to that? So that seems to be uh, kind of on the, the tips of everyone's tongues, uh, even though. I didn't even write about teacher raises, and yeah. those are the emails I'm getting. Well, it's funny you should mention that, because that's a perfect segue to what I wanted to talk about next. Uh, we wanted to jump into uh, local politics uh, for a bit here. Normally, we talk about statewide stuff, but uh, a lot of times the uh, stuff that happens at the city and county level sort of percolates up to the state, and uh, the teacher pay and uh, teacher angst is one of those. So uh, Don Vaughn from the Herald Sun joining us now to talk a little bit about that. Uh, Don, what's the deal in Durham with this whole teacher protest thing that's coming up here in a couple weeks? So Durham is known um, as being pretty uh, activist. Um, protests are, are pretty regular. Um, people say what they think. They vote um, how they, um, well, it's, it's basically a blue city, for sure, politically. Um, so it's more like division within that, um, liberal versus progressive, with progressives thinking um, liberals aren't as far to the left as progressives are. So um, because they speak up more, um, it's not any surprise that um, Durham Public Schools teachers um, put in for a personal day for May 16th to go protest um, on the first day of the General Assembly session. 
Um, and because there were so many, um, the school board last night, um, Greg Childress is the reporter who covers um, the Durham Public Schools, um, they decided to make it an optional teacher workday. Um, so technically they didn't close schools to let teachers protest, but that's basically what they did because they don't have enough teachers in the classroom. You can't operate it. It's over a thousand teachers. Um, and also this week, I guess it was Tuesday night, which was May Day, which um, has different meanings around the world, but it's um, in the United States, it's a lot of um, worker protests. Um, and so Durham, of course, had one because Durham likes a good protest. And it was, there's the Durham Workers Assembly and a lot of different, there's um, the Duke Grad Student Union, the um, UE Local 150, um, the City Workers Union, and a whole lot of other non-labor groups, um, because like I said, there's a lot of activism in Durham. Um, and even in that, where they were talking about um, labor issues and even like the labor in the jail, and they like, they ended part of the rally at the jail and called up to the people in jail, we see you, we love you, and you could hear the prisoners inside banging um, their acknowledgement. Um, so one of the speakers even said, hey, everybody, don't forget to come to um, Raleigh on May 16th, you know, with the, with the teachers and the um, rally around education. Um, so that crosses over a lot of things in, in Durham, so it's not a surprise um, that that's how, how that went down. Yeah, and you have to wonder if that many teachers in Durham alone are coming. I mean, Durham County is one of 100 counties, and I imagine yeah. the teachers are not quite as activist in other parts of the state as they perhaps are in Durham, but it's still probably going to be a huge crowd uh, for the yeah. first day of the legislative short session. Yeah, and, and I think that Durham teachers and, and Durhamites in general um, aren't afraid to um, take action when they think, think it needs to be. and. A lot of people are, are excited about the um, current Durham City Council, um, most of which is new um, since elections last fall. And this council has, has been listening to the labor groups and the Sturm um, Workers Assembly, you know, has asked them for a workers' rights commission, which hasn't happened yet. Uh, but the council did, uh, I guess maybe a month or so ago, pass a resolution um, demanding that the state overturn the ban on collective bargaining. Uh, for, for state employees. So the, the city's responsive to uh, what different groups of activists want. It's just a matter of how can they respond, how can they work around the state, and that's what comes up a lot, is that the uh, council members, the mayor, other things in Durham, and, and people wanting to, um, they talk about Durham values, like how to, how to show and act on these Durham values, and a lot of it stops, like, very quickly slams to a halt when uh, the state prevents them from doing things. So there's a lot of, um, you know, people aren't really happy with the state government. Yeah, <laughs> it's just sort of fascinating to see that, that difference because you have, on one hand, the Durham City Council backing, you know, collective bargaining rights. At the same time, I think, I don't know if it's active enough to where it actually is going to show up on the ballot this year, but there was a constitutional amendment proposed to make the right to work state status part mm -hmm. of the state's constitution as opposed to simply a law that bans uh, collective bargaining. So certainly the, the two sides of the coin there. Um, and it's interesting to see, uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if Durham, by getting active on some of these issues, will get any sort of backlash. I know when I covered the city of Raleigh, there was a lot of uh, fear among the city mm -hmm. leaders of if we take stands on some of these bigger issues, will the legislature get mad and come down and take away some of our powers? And yeah, Durham know. doesn't care. Yeah. They're like, go <laughs> ahead. And, and that's the thing about Durham. They're like, you know, whatever. Like, we don't, we don't care. We're going to do this. 
And plus, I mean, Dur the Durham delegation, I mean, it includes McKissick and Mashaw and Woodard. And, you know, Woodard was on city council, like, seems like just a few years ago. You yeah, know, I mean, they're certainly not going to go after the city leaders in, in any way at all. And yeah, I mean, they're supportive. You yeah. know, they, they, come to, they come to stuff. So, yeah, there's no, uh, like I said, Durham, even if you think it's because it's a blue city, uh, in the county, it's not as much, and it's not all uh, Democrat, but majority, it's, it's really interesting to watch the politics in play, and you're like, well, do they still argue? Oh, yeah. Like, there's plenty, and that's the thing with Durham is that they put it all out there, and they'll, they'll tell you what you think, from elected officials to residents to employees, just everybody, really. But that's what makes covering City Hall really fun. Oh, yeah, actually. for sure. Lots lot to keep you busy, and I wanted to touch on briefly this controversy that I would not have expected to see probably in any other city in North Carolina over Malcolm X Day. What, what, what was going on with that? <coughs> yes. So this story has been interesting. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, like, there's been a lot of uh, controversy in Durham over, uh, it would take a long way to explain it, but basically uh, the city issued a statement on militarized policing which was also a response to a petition asking for uh, the city police department to cut ties with any sort of police exchanges with Israel, which they don't do. Um, they don't have plans to do, but the police chief had done um, not any sort of militarized police training or anything, but had done a, a different kind of um, um, educational exchange, I guess, when she was in the Atlanta Police Department. Uh, so people are worried about her doing it here. And, and basically the statement just included the police chief Davis's memo to the city manager, uh, Bonfield, saying um, we don't have any exchanges with Israel and we don't plan to. But that was mentioned in this longer statement about uh, what kind of policing do we want to be in Durham. Again, those Durham values I was talking about. So if you mention Israel, um, people have a lot of thoughts and a lot of anger and it turned into a really, really contentious uh, meeting and emails and, and everything, because <laughs> I read council email, uh, people are really unhappy about it um, on, on, on every aspect of it. Uh, so that was, a, 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 I guess, a difficult situation that the council went through, and then that was not even two weeks ago or just two weeks ago. Uh, so at the end of last week, I see the agenda for the May 7th, this coming Monday council meeting, and it says um, Malcolm X Day proclamation. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to, you know, I know that Malcolm X Liberation University was founded in Durham in 1969, and that um, Senator McKissick's father, Floyd McKissick Sr., uh, was a very active civil rights leader, um, and Floyd McKissick Jr. Um, had met Malcolm X when he came to debate uh, Floyd McKissick Sr. when he was head of Corps. Uh, anyway, there's a lot of interesting uh, Malcolm X connections in Durham. So I was starting to think about that, and then people that are still mad over the policing statement got the text of the resolution that they thought was supportive of Nation of Islam, which is the Southern Poverty Law Center calls a hate group and you know, anti-Semitic. So all of this other stuff came up again. And the mayor was on vacation, and I went around and ended up coming back to him, ended up talking to him while he was on vacation. He said that I haven't read this proclamation, I'm not issuing any proclamations, we've had enough of you know, symbolic stuff lately. 
Um, then come to find out it was a different council member that submitted it, and she said, I, I, don't, I can reword the language if you want. I just want to recognize Malcolm X because May 19th uh, was his birthday. And she said, that's going to come and go regardless of whether the city issues a proclamation. And she said, by the way, in 2003, former Mayor Bill Bell issued a Malcolm X Day proclamation. And the language in it is different. It's one that's very um, much broader about Malcolm X's entire life um, than the proposed one, which again, she said she could reword. Um, that was a little more only Nation of Islam. Okay, so that's been the controversy this week, and there's a whole other different side things related to that. Uh, so that's how Malcolm X Day proclamation has turned into something here uh, in Durham, and where it stands now is they're probably not going to do it because if it's not on the agenda for Monday, the next meeting, it's past Malcolm X Day, uh, if you observe that as his, as his birthday. But what Councilmember Deidreana Freeman told me, what I was saying, that um, regardless of what the city does, it's still his birthday, and she'll still talk to her kids about it and his significance and legacy and everything. So um, the good part of this, I think, that even without a proclamation is it's gotten people talking about Malcolm X yeah, and learning we about it. Yeah, certainly talking about it and yeah, might not you know? otherwise. <laughs> so he's, uh, yeah, a very interesting historical figure on like many different levels. Um, and the people know a lot about Martin Luther King's ties to Durham and all the many times um, he came here and stayed at Mashaw's house. And like they might be aware of Malcolm X, may not have uh, known that he had been here. And especially that this university um, it only lasted about a year in Durham um, for various reasons, but that it was founded there, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks for uh, that update on Durham, uh, Dawn. Um, we, sure, <laughs> having rhyming uh, names, I'm going to throw off my uh, uh, speaking here, but uh, if you're looking to follow uh, Durham politics, what's your Twitter handle for that? Um, it's at Dawn B. Vaughan, and Vaughn is spelled V-A-U-G-H-A-N. So it's D-A-W-N-B-V-A-U-G-H-A-N. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with our, everybody's favorite segment, Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school, but I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Headliner of the week. 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 Who's hot? And welcome back to Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from The Insider in the hosting chair this week. And now, of course, it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Headliner of the Week, where we ask our panelists to name the biggest headliner of the week, uh, either a person, uh, event, or thing, or other sort of inanimate thing, food, vegetables. Uh, we, we take all uh, on this. Um, so uh, for that, we'll uh, start by going to uh, Lauren Horst from The Insider. Lauren, who's your headliner this week? So mine's not food-related this week. Sorry, y'all. No more um, onions or pickles? No. We missed our chance to do a pickle back last week. Um, but I'm stealing a page out of Colin's book, and I'm actually going to nominate an inanimate object. Yay! The <laughs> North Carolina General Assembly metal detectors. They're up. They're running. Get ready. 
Um, I so, passed through it successfully for the first time. Yeah, didn't leave anything metal in my pocket. Yes, no. So many of you know, if you're longtime Twitter followers of mine or readers of the Insider and the News and Observer, we are getting new metal detectors and X-ray scanners at uh, both entrances of the General Assembly. Um, and this week, we started testing them, which meant that I got stuck behind about 15 school children uh, on my Please way back. Allow extra time to get to your destination. Yes. So. Um, be mindful of that when session starts on May 16th because there will be more people there than we would usually expect on an opening day of short session. Um, but when I went through it actually was pretty smooth. Um, it expected to be very much like going through TSA um, at your local uh, airport except you get to keep your shoes on, your belt on. Um, I didn't have to take my laptop out but rumor has it Colin had yeah, to take his out. Yeah, they asked me to take mine out. Um, probably because I had what looked like a very laptopy laptop bag. He's also very suspicious. Um, they but, really didn't want to let me in the building, but they felt like they had to. Yeah, and the and the and the trainers are getting very like cheeky with me because now they see me around the building all the time, and they're playing some practical jokes that I don't quite appreciate. Asked you if you had an IED on you. Yes, and then they uh, tried to get me. Yeah, yeah. They, they were asking if I had prohibited items, guns, knives, or IEDs. Um, and then the second time I went through, I just had my cell phone on me, and the guy was like, "Ma'am, I need you to unlock your cell phone," and I was like. Uh, what? And then he's like, no, I'm kidding. You don't need to. Um, so that's, you know, just get ready for metal detectors. I mean, it'll, it'll be a big adjustment, but I think it'll be good. So. Can we start like an office betting pool or something on who is going to be the first legislator to get caught with a banned item? So they don't get to go through. Um, oh, they don't go through. No. So they get, because they have to rush back for session. Yeah. So they have. Yeah, legislators and staff. I guess. Yes, just they have get. A pass. They have a fast pass. Uh, reporters do not. I'm sure I will get a. I'm sure I will get a couple forks confiscated at some point. But there might be an instructional video. In my lunch bag, I eat lunch. <laughs> um, so we'll maybe have an instructional video later. Will you see someone pull a fake gun out of my purse? Who knows? Um, but. There we right go. Yeah. Metal detectors, yo. <laughs> Get pumped for that. All right, metal detectors in the hat for headline of the week. Uh, we'll go next to Will Dora. And Will, who's your headliner? I'm going to go for Maya Little, who was the UNC grad student who was arrested for uh, defacing the Silent Sam uh, Confederate monument on campus. She poured uh, blood, blood and paint on the statue. I think it was mostly paint. Um, but uh, Unless her blood looked like paint. Right. Um, and she said that, you know, this statue does not have the proper historical context, and she was adding that historical context uh, as, you know, a black person. She was putting, you know, her blood onto it and saying this is, you know, the context that the, that the statue needs if it's going to remain up, and, you know, kind of, you know, yet another chapter in this ongoing debate over Silent Sam and, you know, should we keep it up? Should we take it down? Should we let it stay up? But you know, with added context, um, I, I think probably if the if you ask state officials, they would argue that any added context is not uh, paint and blood, but probably more like a plaque explaining uh, you know uh, it's kind of racist past. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what happens with that, uh, since obviously uh, you know we're talking about Durham earlier in, in Durham. Uh, when the protesters damaged the Confederate statue there, you know, obviously none of them ended up going to trial for that. They were all arrested and charged for it, but then all those charges got dropped along the way. So, so it'll be interesting to see what, what Orange County does about that. Um, and uh, 
Yeah, one, one little uh, tidbit that I enjoyed about this was that uh, uh, my little, the student uh, is at UNC for grad school and for undergrad she went to Bowdoin College in Maine, which as Civil War buffs will know uh, was where Union General Lawrence Chamberlain was the president of after the Civil War. Did you just know that off the top of your head or did yeah. you Wikipedia? So watch the watch the great movie Gettysburg from the '90s, starring uh, Martin Sheen, and uh, I think Jeff Daniels plays Chamberlain. Uh, has a little thing at the end about how he goes off back to Bodwin. I don't know if that's what Bodwin is most famous for, but that's what it's most famous for to me, yeah. as someone who knows very little about Maine. Yeah. All right. A little uh, unexpected Maine Civil War history from Will there. All right. Uh, so uh, Maya Little uh, is in the hat as headliner along with uh, legislative metal detectors. And uh, last but not least, uh, Don Vaughn, who's your headliner, your mm-hmm. first pick uh, on this podcast. If I can add a little bit to Will about Maya Little, remember I was saying about activist Durham? So she was at the protest, the labor protest on Tuesday, and she's a union member uh, too. And she said uh, the way she tied that together was that her quote was, we cannot struggle for workers without struggling against white supremacy. And she talked about Silent Sam some, and and of course, um, labor issues too. So going off of that, I'm gonna say that my headliner of the week is a North Carolina public school teacher. Because um, what, or a Durham, I guess anybody, but really Durham public school teacher, North Carolina public school teacher, and uh, the fact that they've made a huge change of what um, how a school system operates because of the broader statewide change that they want to make so that's my headliner public school teacher all right public school teachers we've got uh maya little for her uh statue defacement and metal detectors for uh being a, a newcomer to the general assembly uh, it's all good choices i think i'm gonna have to go uh with uh public school teachers on this one i mean this yes. Uh, this protest is, you're going to be hearing a lot of this about this protest in the next couple of weeks. I feel pretty certain. I think the fact that Durham is having to close schools indicates that we're seeing a level of uh, activism among teachers, both in Durham and I'm pretty sure elsewhere, uh, that we haven't seen in the past. Some of that, I think, riffing off of what's happening in other states, uh, but just building upon uh, years of, of concerns about teacher pay and resources and funding. Uh, and all these other things. So uh, Dawn's our winner for Headliner of the Week this uh, week. Do I get an Under the Dome mug? I think no. that I'll, I'll take an Insider no. mug. I still don't have an Where's my mug? Yeah. I don't know. Jordan, you're editing this. I yeah. don't have an Under the Dome mug either. Yeah, we're, we're going to take this up with Jordan, uh, who is not with us on the podcast. Dawn needs but a is mug. in the other room. Uh, we, can, we can make a lobbying <laughs> for that. That'll, that'll be what we protest for uh, this coming week. Uh, so thanks so much for uh, tuning into this Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from The Insider. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.